When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. Today we're talking about the Panama Canal, and and it ranks up there with the greatest engineering feats of the 20th century, certainly up there with the likes of the Hoover Dam and arguably the International Space Station. But we think less about it nowadays, probably because of the increased traffic through our airports, But at the time, the canal cut travel from Atlantic to Pacific to a week or 10 days. Before the canal, it took three times longer to navigate around the Horn of South America. The canal tells a lot of other stories as well. It tells of French investment and failure. It tells of U.S. colonialism and intervention. It tells of labor relations and the working people who migrated to the area. It also tells about environmental changes wrought by the construction And it has a public health story with the eradication of malaria and increased sanitation. And of course, still at the heart of this, there's the story of engineering as well. But outside the work of the actual canal, the U.S. investment in construction transformed the canal zone in many other ways. As Julie Green wrote in her 2009 book, The Canal Builders, the people that worked in the canal zone surely have stories to tell. And we've heard many of these stories from the memoirs of Americans, whether they designed the lock system or managed the uh, administration of the commission or financed the project. We've heard about male migrant workers who excavated, dynamited, and poured concrete. We've heard about Colombians who felt like they were cut out. Today, we're going to hear about migrant women, a group largely understudied who were not officially working towards the construction of the canal, but who transformed the canal zone and the way it worked. And joining me to do this is Professor of History at the University of Southern California, Joanne Flores Villalobos. Joanne has just written the book Silver Women, How Black Women's Labor Made the Panama Canal, and it's an exciting addition to the literature. Please welcome to the show, Joanne Flores Villalobos. Thank you so much for having me here, Mike. Well, it's a privilege because the Panama Canal sort of looms large in the Gilded Age as such an important part of uh, I suppose, American imperialism and, uh, you know, sort of also what, what's possible through engineering feats. Your book includes a labor force that has been excluded from the histories of the Panama Canal. And, you know, we think of engineers, perhaps, and it wasn't just the migrant male laborers that were responsible. It's these silver women that you talk about. So I just wanted to give you an opportunity to say who they are. Who are the silver women? Yeah. And, you know, this book is really important to me because part of it is really about not replacing, but expanding the history we know about the Panama Canal, right? We learn about it so much as the technical aspects or a little later on the labor aspects of it, but it was really such a huge social world that supported the whole endeavor. Uh, And to me, the silver women are really what made this happen in this kind of broader way. Um, So the Silver Women were West Indian women who traveled to Panama and the Panama Canal Zone uh, and provided uncontracted domestic and care labor for the job. And I call them the Silver Women because in the Canal Zone, uh, labor was, the payroll was divided racially between the gold roll for white Americans and the silver roll for Black West Indian workers. Um, Initially, in the very early years, this literally meant that white Americans were paid in gold coin and uh, West Indian laborers were paid in silver coin and local uh, Colombian pesos or Panamanian balboas. 
Um, eventually, they all get paid in American dollars, but with a really sharply divided payroll, right? Um, but then gold and silver begin to essentially signify Jim Crow categories of segregation, right? Gold for white, black for silver. And there are a few exceptions to this, but because white Americans and black West Indians are the two biggest, the biggest majority population groups there, it really begins to be understood as a racial division, right? And it divides everything in the canal zone, housing, mess halls and cafeterias, commissaries, YMCAs, uh, even the towns within the canal zone have a kind of gold and silver section. Um, so I call them the silver women because even though they weren't part of the official contracted payroll, they are part of this racially segregated uh, community. I also call them the silver women, I have to point out, because there's a very, very famous book that was published in 85 by a Caribbean scholar called Velma Newton called The Silver Men. It's probably the most famous work and one of the earliest works on West Indian labor on the Canal Zone. It doesn't get read very much in the US. Uh, she works at the University of the West Indies and I just really wanted to honor her work. So I also, you know, it's kind of a play on her title. Oh, that's excellent. We're gonna have to add her book to the bibliography in the show notes for sure. Um, or I, I was wondering too, if you can maybe for the listeners, cause not everyone is gonna be familiar with uh, Caribbean history or even, you know, Latin American history more broadly. But could you give us a short summary, particularly of women's history in the Caribbean from emancipation, which is when you do start sort of contextualizing your work up until 1903 when the canal becomes an American project? Yeah, I mean, a big ask. <laughs> totally. But something I kind of try to do in the book too, right? I mean, what's important to me is also contextualizing the construction of the Panama Canal uh, within broader histories of the Caribbean, right? So I start my first chapter um, all the way in emancipation in the islands, thinking about what's happening in Barbados, in Jamaica, in Martinique. And I try to do that throughout the early chapters because to me, the history of uh, West Indian migration to the canal zone is really connected to this post-emancipation moment, right? You have a group of people who are formerly enslaved who are living in islands that are undergoing very severe economic depressions, right? Uh, the sugar industry is in total collapse. Uh, and formerly enslaved people are trying to define their own freedom, right? And for that, for to them, that means not staying on the plantation, right? Uh, not living under the yoke and surveillance of planters. Uh, throughout the various decades following emancipation, they attempt different ways to do this, but ultimately there aren't a whole lot of economic opportunities in the region um, until uh, imperial investment comes around, uh, right? And this is not quite the same as the colonial governments that they're used to in the islands, right? Um, but instead private investment in different kind of borderlands of the Caribbean. And people might know the story of the growth of bananas, cacao, other kind of commodities like that. So the Panama Canal is kind of an outgrowth of that. But because it is uh, built by the US government, the amount of money that goes into it is just massive, right? And all of a sudden, this huge opportunity that is paying three, four, five times as much as anybody could ever hope to make uh, on a plantation uh, pops up in the Caribbean, right? And everyone is really drawn to it, not only because of the economic opportunity, but also because of the sense that they're working on something that is not agricultural labor, right? That is not a recreation of the plantation. Yeah, that's a totally different thing, absolutely. And and the women that you talk about, you mentioned that about half of them come from Barbados alone. And you mentioned, obviously, there's this huge pull factor to Panama, that there's this wealth to be made, you know, tripling perhaps what, you know, what an income could be in Barbados. Is there a push factor for them too? I mean, is there something that's, you know, pushing them out of Barbados and such a large population of women are leaving that island in particular? Yeah, I mean, part of the, I guess, push and pull factor, those are kind of complicated categories, uh, is that Barbados is also happens to be the island that gets some of the most recruitment. So it's also the island where people hear about it a lot. Um, it is also one of the islands where there aren't um, legal and economic barriers to out migration. So, for example, in Jamaica, the government establishes um, 
that anybody emigrating out of Jamaica needs to pay into a fund that will help repatriate them at the end of their labor contract. Barbados doesn't require that, right? So people can leave uh, relatively freely, um, which makes it a lot easier than other places. It also has a direct line on the Royal Mail steamships, right, from Bridgetown to Colón, which was the, the entry port of Panama also makes it a little bit easier than most other places, right? So all of that um, is, is uh, factoring into women's decisions. The other part is, again, the kind of lack of economic opportunity, uh, the lack of available land at that point. Um, so Barbados, unlike somewhere like Jamaica, which has a lot, Barbados is a very small island. Um, it doesn't really have there's not really the possibility for people to expand outwards and, um, you know, gain their own land and allow their families to grow outside of the plantations. And so people really seek um, opportunities outside of the island. The other push factor is that the uh, Barbadian colonial government is actually pushing uh, emigration schemes, right? They're really concerned about the labor problem on the island, uh, essentially that there are too many people for the few jobs that they need given the uh, economic depression with sugar. So that's another big push factor as well. My my immediate sense was this must be destroying, you know, island populations if they're if they're moving to, you know, Panama. Uh, but but actually maybe this was something that, you know, would, might may have benefited in, in the case of Barbados. Okay, well, I could, that's fascinating. I could definitely talk more about the migration uh, aspect of this, but I'm curious to know, and, and for you to tell listeners, how did the women get to Panama? You mentioned the steam line, uh, you know, the trade lines. Um, and then when they get to Panama, what awaits them? Yeah, I mean, this is a really important part of the story because unlike most men, silver men, uh, who arrive in Panama with contracts, or if not with contracts, with at least at least the promise of a secure job, right? That's almost certainly to be the case. And once you get a job with the canal, with the Isbian Canal Commission, you're guaranteed housing, not very good housing, but housing, food, et cetera, right? Women have none of this. They are not guaranteed contracts. They are not offered contracts, really. Um, they are not guaranteed housing. They are not guaranteed food. None of these things come along with their migration. They do know, however, that there is a huge demand for their labor, right? Um, so on arrival, they can expect two things. One, definitely a job, uh, probably in the house of a white American family working as a domestic or a cook, perhaps as a laundress to several um, American families. Uh, you could get official jobs in some of the few hotels that were owned by the Canal Commission or as an official domestic, but most people worked in private homes or you could work in the markets and sell food. But the other thing they could expect on arrival, unfortunately, uh, was very intense surveillance by American authorities. Um, I tell a story in my second chapter of one of the very earliest uh, arrivals of West Indian women. It was a ship of around 300 Martinican women who on arrival are basically assumed to have arrived as sex workers, right? Um, because the mere idea that Black women were traveling to the canal alone uh, to work independently of the canal zone seemed to authorities to be completely suspicious, right? So everything about them, the fact that they weren't legally married, which was not common in the Caribbean at all, people were partnered, but not necessarily legally married or church married. Um, so the fact that they weren't officially married the fact that they just wanted to work independently, the fact that they traveled alone was all highly suspicious to authorities. And so women would come in and immediately face this assessment of their morals. Okay, you brought up the controversy in chapter two. So I had a few more questions I wanted to get to before we got there, but seeing as we're there, you know, I've got to ask you about the, the sex workers that you mentioned. So, and I'll do it as bluntly as you do in the conclusion of the chapter. Did American administrators recruit sex workers for the canal builders? I mean, yeah, as I answer in the chapter, they didn't. They didn't recruit women as sex workers. However, they are very clear in their in their internal communication, right? That they recruited women for two things. One, for domestic labor, which they said there was a crying need for them uh, to fill to fill jobs in domestic labor. And second, and this they said in various ways, right? To accompany the men. 
they were really worried in the very early years of the construction about labor retention, right? Uh, West Indian men, as they had very often done in the decades prior of Caribbean migration, would migrate back and forth, right? They would come, they would work a contract for a few months, and then they would leave because they knew they could come back and get a job again. Um, and so the canal authorities did not like that. They wanted people to stay for their full contract term. Um, and so they thought, well, if we let them bring their wives, if we, win, if we bring women and make the canal zone a kind of nicer place for them to be, maybe they'll stay. So they were thinking about romantic and sexual relationships between West Indians, right? They did not actively say that they were bringing them as sex workers. However, they were highly aware that in other, uh, you know, Amer American imperial investments, uh, often there were sex workers and often that helped the labor retention issue, right? Uh, so they were definitely aware of that. The problem is that they had a really hard time parsing out what was sex work. Because again, West Indians were often not legally married. Uh, American authorities often misread West Indian relationships where a man and a woman lived together uh, and a man perhaps paid his wife, uh, essentially, some of his wages, and they might misread that as sex work because these people were not married and because perhaps they would leave each other after a short period of time, right? So to them, that was a kind of worrying uh, boundary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, so I, I was wondering if you might say a little bit more about that, because your book actually delves quite deep into the intersection between the state and morality and marriage as well. And, and, and the state really does take a central role in, in, the, in the canal zone of defining a woman's, woman's place in society and in the household as well. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because in the, in the earliest, earliest years of the construction, right, we're talking 04, 05 and up to 06. The construction was from 1904 to 1914 for those who might not know. So in the very early years, uh, the construction is, is kind of a mess, right? They're not quite sure how they're going to go about this job. There is a lot of things they need to figure out before they even begin construction, right? The labor retention issue, what to do with the stuff the French left, mosquito-borne disease, so on and so forth. What I'm trying to say with this is that in the very beginning, they didn't really quite have a sense that there was going to be 
a moral standard that they were going to set for the labor force. They thought they were going to be able to get in and get out, right? The workers come, they build a canal, we leave, everybody's happy, great. <laughs> and what the arrival of these women uh, in late 1905 does is really push them to realize that uh, kind of social control also had to be an important part um, of their method of governance. And so they begin to develop ideas about morality uh, for everybody who lives in the canal zone, right? And I say this because they also had a vision of what uh, partnership meant for white Americans. They actively encouraged uh, white American women to migrate to the canal. They actively encouraged them to, you know, work as housewives and um, build up the domestic sphere of the canal zone to civilize the jungle of Panama. I say this with air quotes that you can't see, but I hope you can hear. <laughs> um, so there was definitely a standard of morality there as well. Now with Black women, they also begin to develop a sense of what the, the you know, requisites are uh, for them to live there. And one of them is this issue of marriage, right? So right after this scandal with uh, the arrival of uh, the Martinican women who they assume to be sex workers, uh, the canal zone governor, Magoon, passes um, a law, an ordinance that essentially makes cohabitation without marriage uh, illegal, totally illegal, right? And it, it gives the canal zone police um, free reign to essentially surveil intimate relationships and question people as to whether they are actually married or in fact engaging in a sex work exchange, um, which ends up becoming this huge crime in the canal zone, right? You see it throughout the years that uh, people get persecuted for this crime, um, but often don't go to jail or anything. All they do is have to pay a fine or if they get married right away, they don't have to pay the fine. <laughs> So it's really a kind of compulsory marriage for West Indians, right? Um, but then there's kind of other shadings to morality, the kind of morality fight uh, with Black West Indian women. There's the issue of marriage. There's also the issue of labor, right? Uh, the canal authorities really wanted uh, West Indian women's labor to be under their purview. They wanted them to work in American homes under the watchful eyes of American bosses in homes, hotels, commissaries, whatever it might be. They were less pleased with women who worked, for example, as laundresses or market women who would travel around the canal zone and cross between gold and silver roll spaces, right? Really outside of their area of surveillance. And to them, that was also immoral, right? And so you see this come up not only through the eyes of the state, but through the eyes of white American residents of the canal zone who would constantly send these letters saying like, I saw a black woman doing this and I didn't like it, even though you know, once you read it, it's basically just a woman who's going around like doing her job. Yeah. And that's the, th the other thing that stands out in the book is that these women and their work are a lot of in a lot of cases outside the remit of the Isman Canal uh, Commission, which the ICC or, you know, the U.S. government response, U.S. government agency responsible for building the canal. So how else does the ICC maintain control beyond the surveillance, beyond the kind of, you know, arrange your forced marriages? Are there other ways, too, that they, you know, do, I mean, in terms of the courts, in terms of other police systems that they they control these silver women? Yeah, I mean, all of these things are being developed as we speak, right? Uh, because we're talking about in 1904, there is no such thing as a police for by 1908. That's a really well-established part of the canal zone, right? Um, so you see them kind of developing these institutions, uh, the police, the prisons, uh, the courts, the asylums, um, the ordinances and laws, their extension of these laws and policing into Panama outside of the canal zone, which is the area of U.S. sovereignty, um, the, the everyday surveillance of white bosses. Um, but I think the other thing you made me think about with that question, which I, which I think is important to always note when thinking about kind of the power that U.S. authorities had, um, is that it only went so far, right? Um, and though West Indian women definitely had to deal with this, they also weren't part of the official labor force, so could kind of skirt some of these areas of surveillance, right? If one of the main, you know, if we consider the role system, for example, to be one of the primary modes of labor control on the canal zone, uh, it's structured kind of all space 
um, all space under U.S. sovereignty, and it structured how you acquired food, it structured where you slept, right? West Indian women weren't quite beholden to that. Um, and that's kind of the important uh, interaction that's interesting to me in the book. I feel as though, I just want to let everyone know, I didn't give you these questions in advance, but it's as if you are segueing perfectly into every question that I have <laughs> about the book, because... I mean, obviously, race and gender are so central in this book, obviously, right? They define the lives of everyone involved, and yet it is so much more complicated in your narrative. And you're you're right in saying, okay, yeah, they're not part of the official force, and that gives them this leeway in order to sort of, but they, they also have this leeway in the identities that they adopt, their, their you know, their femininity, their, 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 their race or how they identify. All of that is actually adopted and discarded when necessary. And you talk about these cases in your book. So I'm wondering if you can give us a few examples of when migrant women do this, when they adopt and discard identities, because you've got you've got so many great examples in your book about how they manipulate ideas of themselves in order to further their own, you know, prosperity or just get on with things. Yeah, I mean, I think what what one would think would be the obvious story, right, is that uh, the American authorities exerted control through a kind of racialized and gendered mode of governance. Uh, what was interesting to me is that when looking at the women, you find that it's a lot more gray than that, right? Uh, because in some places, women are, are facing very intense violence and surveillance. Uh, in other, you know, in other sources, you see them really kind of skirting around these issues in interesting ways, right? Um, so one of the, I mean, there are a million examples, read the book, <laughs> but one of the examples, for example, in terms of in terms of changing kind of racial identity, um, is that often women who we can probably assume to have been light skinned um, would present themselves in front of authorities as brown uh, instead of black, uh, which would give them a certain amount of leeway talking to courts. Um, the other way that they maneuvered around the kind of boundaries of the canal zone was to often ask for payment in gold instead of silver, which they could do because they weren't on the silver roll, uh, right? So market women would often ask to be paid in gold. Uh, when they went to courts, they would ask to be paid in gold. And then another way that they kind of maneuvered these identities that they presented to the authorities was in thinking again about these kind of moral categories, right? They knew that for the most part, canal authorities saw them as kind of sexual temptresses. Uh, and so often in talking to authorities, they would present themselves as, you know, victims of violence, very humble, uh, struggling to make money, even though we know, even sometimes from the same women, that they are making money, that they are working, not that they aren't victims of violence, right? That is certainly true. But they're not these kind of dejected figures that are, you know, completely victimized by their conditions, right? Rather, they're kind of using this narrative of victimization to be able to survive in this really hostile space. It's it's so good, you know, because the agency here is, is changing all the time. You know, there's there's powerlessness and victimization at times. There's also, you know, an ability to, to, to take hold of things in, in other times. And I, the, one of the questions I had throughout all, all of uh, all of the reading that I did was how in the world did you find these voices of these women? I mean, where are they in the archives? Because they're not, I mean, okay, you can talk about court records maybe, but like, you know, they don't leave the same records as uh, canal bureaucrats, right? So how how did you do this? Well, mostly through just uh, working a lot and being sad. Um, I tell this story a lot about my first time going to the National Archives in College Park, Maryland. It's where, you know, most of the archives of uh, the U.S. are held. Um, they have all the records of the Canal Zone administration. Uh, and I remember going, I, so I started this project as an undergrad. So I was, you know, 21 years old, uh, sitting in Nara College Park, um, reading through endless boxes. And I was just like, wow, I'm never going to find anything, right? It was just boxes and boxes and boxes of, you know, quartermaster's reports, uh, building reports, uh, dredging, so many dredging <laughs> reports. 
uh, endless things like that. And it even got to the point where, where I thought I would find women, they weren't visible either. So for example, there's a whole uh, administrative category of laundry service. And I was like, this is going to be it, right? This is going to be where I find women. Because of course, I knew at that point that uh, Black West Indian women were often laundresses in the canal zone. And instead, it is so many boxes that tell you the price of starching a collar from the year 1904 to the year 1979, <laughs> but nothing about the women who did it, right? I mean, this was, I went home and cried that day. I was like, <laughs> this, this is the end of the project, right? Um, eventually, I figured out that within the official records of the Canal Commission, women were often found you know, in records that criminalized them uh, or in records that were kind of miscellaneous, right? So um, yeah, a lot of, uh, there's a whole category for records um, of of people who broke the ordinance against cohabitation without marriage. Um, I found a lot of women there. Uh, there is a whole set of records for uh, women who engaged in interracial sex, another crime in the canal zone. Uh, there's a a lot of women in records about venereal disease, which was also a big concern of the canal zone authorities. So things like that, right? And I think what happened was that even though, I mean, I was happy that I had found mentions of women in this archive, but I also grew really frustrated, right? To me, that was still a really limiting narrative. Um, and that's when I began to seek archives outside of the official records of the canal administration, even though those are still like quite numerous, right? Um, so I went to Barbados and I went to the UK and I went to Panama to try to find uh, ways to think about the work that these women were doing uh, in the diaspora, right? The transnational work they were doing with their families, um, the ways that they were migrating, stories of, of kinship and of love that weren't just about criminalization, right? Um, so I found great records in Panama that were... Um, kind of justice of the peace cases that tell you about kind of everyday life in a Panamanian neighborhood. Uh, and I found these amazing letters uh, in the National Archives of the UK that were sent by West Indian women to their colonial governments um, asking for the belongings of deceased relatives uh, in Panama, where they often tell the stories of the migration of their families and how much they love their relatives, right? And how much it means to them uh, to get this money back, et cetera, et cetera, right? That tell you this much broader story about migration. Wow, that's fascinating and such a good story for any students that might be listening about how to triangulate research and and use the sort of the international archives there as well instead of focusing just on the you know the domestic standard national archives. Wonderful. Um, I mean, just building on that a little bit, um, your some of your your research discusses particularly chapter five uh, deals with death and burials, funerals. How how did that come out in, in, in through the archival materials that you were reading and and how did that how did silver women leave their mark on Panama through those rituals? Yeah, um, so the canal construction had a huge death toll, especially in the very early years. Right, you have to think that this is a place where again disease mosquito borne diseases rampant in the early years before they get it under control. They're you know they're putting dynamite into mountains every day, every day. Uh, there are so many ways to have accidents um, and to die. And the death toll is also kind of racially divided, right? Of the, of the official death toll, uh, which is a little bit over 5,000, maybe closer to 6,000, even that number, 80% of those are West Indian deaths. Um, and I kind of characterize that a little bit more carefully in the book, because in fact, so many deaths went unrecorded. Uh, people died anonymously. They weren't able to identify them for various reasons. Um, and so we really don't know the number of people that died officially on the canal zone. Of course, people who weren't contracted workers were also not counted on the official death toll. Um, and the way that I, I mean, this is, uh, this is a kind of well-known thing about the canal construction, although I wouldn't say spoken about very much, right, in the kind of like hagiographic histories of the construction. Um, but the way I found my way into it was again in these archives in the UK, where I was just start searching the colonial office records and began, began to find all these individual letters from women, which 
for a women's historian is the mother load, right? You're like, oh, I just want to find letters written by women. And then you do. <laughs> it's a kind of an incredible moment. Um, but then I realized there were like over 400 of these, right? Um, and I started putting together that they were connected to the patterns of, of people dying on the canal zone, right? So what these letters were, uh, were West Indian women who were still on the islands, who realized that a family, a male family member uh, who had traveled to Panama had died during the construction, and they were requesting the leftover belongings or the owed wages of their family members who were who had recently died, right, from canal authorities and from colonial government authorities on the islands. Um, and they tell these like incredible stories, both about their families, but also about the deaths of their relatives, right, who are not being accounted for. There's also work that goes on in Panama, right? West Indian women in Panama are the ones who begin to recreate Afro-Caribbean uh, death rituals in Panama because canal authorities often, particularly for bodies who were not identified, uh, would bury silver workers in unmarked graves, right? Graves that were just marked with a number. Um, and so it was really women who took charge of leading funerals, of recreating something like nine nights celebrations, which is are very common uh, in the Caribbean, in the British Caribbean. Um, they would sing songs, they would, you know, pour rum out on the ground for the duppy, for the spirit of the deceased, and various other rituals like that, right? Because the canal authorities weren't honoring their dead in the same way. Um, and this is still really important today, right? There's a group I highlight at the end of that chapter, it's called the Corozal, uh, Mount Hope, Gatun, CGM, uh, Cemetery Preservation Society, uh, which is a kind of activist nonprofit group of West Indians, West Indian Panamanian descendants, uh, who today help uh, families in the West Indies identify the unmarked graves of their dead uh, in the segregated cemeteries of Panama, right, where they don't know how to locate them because they're only numbers. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's probably... It's in part a very grim part of the book but also it probably it gives the most color and and sense of life in the canal zone for the the silver women and the silver men that that you know that have been written about where do they end up where do these silver women end up do they you know after the canal is built i mean do they go home do they stay in panama what what's what's their story after the canal is built Women take lots of different routes after uh, the canal is completed. Uh, so the canal opens up in August 1914. The start It's the start of World War I. Actually, everybody has stopped paying attention to the canal because, you know, bigger things are afoot, I guess. Um, but for West Indians, this is a really troubling time, right? Because all of a sudden, this economic opportunity is going to dry up. Some people stay in Panama, and actually there's a really vibrant uh, West Indian Panamanian community in Panama still. Um, that was one of the first ways I got into the project was visiting Panama, uh, you know, being aware of the history of the canal, um, and then visiting the wonderful museum they have there run by West Indian Panamanian descendants uh, called the Museo Afrantillano de Panama, the West Indian Museum of Panama, and realizing that actually West Indians in Panama still vividly remember the women who lived and migrated and worked there, right? So there's still a big community in Panama. Um, a lot of them left for New York, and we see huge West Indian Panamanian communities uh, in New York who, you know, join life with other West Indian migrants who are also moving to Brooklyn, to Harlem, uh, who essentially spearhead the Harlem Renaissance, right? Uh, leaving right after the construction of the canal and going into the 1920s. Um, not only the, the kind of cultural renaissance of the Harlem Renaissance, but also uh, the amazing kind of political and labor uh, mobilization that happens in that period. And then a lot of women, and a lot of men as well, uh, leave for other imperial investment opportunities, right? Uh, some of them go to Costa Rica, for example, where the United Fruit Company is still, you know, still growing bananas. Um, and some of them go to Cuba, which kind of happens to line up almost exactly with the end of the canal. Cuba has a huge sugar boom. Uh, and so a lot of people move there to an area in the south of Cuba that is also essentially a company town, uh, right? So West Indian Panamanians who arrive there surely are like, this is the same, right? <laughs> yeah, so a lot of people also go to Cuba as well. 
Yeah, it's a it's a remarkable story of migration. Um, I was just wanted to, I wanted to give you the opportunity to just say something about someone that you've you've learned about in this for the writing of the book. And you know, as you said, now it's I don't know how many years you've been working on this, but it, you know, from undergraduate degree to now your professional career. Um, who was the most impressive or outstanding character that you read about? And that's for any reason. Just you know, what springs to mind is someone that was really impressive. Oh my God. So hard. <laughs> um, it's like asking someone, what's your favorite movie or your favorite band when they're like a musicologist or a film studies major? I know, but um, hopefully you've got a, a great story for us. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to tell you two. Perfect. Because I can't choose this one. Okay. Um, so the first one is, it's one of the first stories I encountered. I am kind of obsessed with this story. Uh, and I tell it often uh, because it's a really, so it's a really complicated story. It is um, written in the memoir of a white woman about her West Indian laundress, which is already kind of full of complications, right? Because it's not, it's not like a West Indian woman is talking about herself or about her experience, but she is being spoken about by her boss. But it's still such a, like a great in your face story that has never left me, right? So in the story, uh, this boss, uh, was a white American housewife, uh, is trying to find her laundress who, you know, isn't supposed to come to work that day, but she has a kind of laundry emergency, which sounds ridiculous, but actually laundry emergencies were very common in Panama. <laughs> it is very dusty and hot. <laughs> uh, it's a construction zone. Okay. So she goes to find her laundress, Angelina, who lives in the kind of silver part of town, right? Um, and as she walks in, she, the, the white housewife, comments on the fact that she sees Angelina surrounded by a lot of Black children. She does not say it as kindly as that, right? It's quite a racist story. Um, but she notices that Angelina is holding a baby who is light-skinned. Uh, and the white woman immediately says to herself that this is evidence of somebody's crossing of the color line. So you can already see this investment of this uh, white housewife who is reading into this scene, again, a kind of moral judgment of what Angelina, her laundress, had been doing, even though she's the one who has invaded her home, right? Uh, because this is not at her place of work. This white housewife decides that it is the right time to say something to her laundress about her child. And let me tell you what, Angelina did not agree. <laughs> and she says to her, you know, I'm not having any more white babies. <laughs> she says, I'm not having any more white babies because they show the dirt too plain. And I was just like, wow, this is such an intense and shocking thing to say. And for us to see recorded as their interaction, right? Uh, for this woman, for this white woman to have come into this black woman's home Instead, essentially insulted her, her children, suggested that she had engaged in what was a crime in the canal zone, right? Uh, making a moral judgment of her in her home. And then for Angelina to really turn it around and say, like, you're not, nothing you say is touching me, right? I don't know, that story has always stuck with me. The other uh, person that really sticks out is somebody that I actually came, so so I say these two because Angelina is somebody I encountered really, really early on, right? These these memoirs by white American women are some of the, the easiest sources to access because they're published books. Um, so I'll talk instead about somebody I encountered really late uh, in the process of writing the book. Um, and it's uh, somebody who I start my first chapter with, her name is Emily Amelia Griffith. Uh, and I found her through an oral history of her descendant, her daughter, um, Attica Moore, who, who lives in Panama, is a West Indian Panamanian, who recorded an oral history where she talks about her father and mother uh, moving to the canal. And the reason that story is important to me is, uh, A, because it's, it's a wonderful you know, powerful and and actually violent story of of her arrival in Panama, but also all the hard work uh, Emily Amelia Griffith did to survive and raise her nine children there. But also because these oral histories were recorded by so that same group I mentioned, the Cemetery Preservation Foundation, has also begun to collect oral histories, and they recently published them uh, in in connection with uh, University of Florida libraries. 
They were just published uh, last year. And working with them and getting to know their work, I began to encounter these oral histories really late in the game of writing the book. Uh, and it was just so amazing and lovely to see descendants talking about their ancestors who traveled to Panama and to see this kind of circuits of kinship that are connecting these women, right? From the activists and the cemetery preservation group to the way that they're trying to collect these oral histories um, that we now like have the honor of listening to. So that was also another really important piece of kind of tying the last bow on the book. I was going to ask you actually if the next project was going to be an oral history one, but it sounds like that's already uh, in the works and, and and being worked out. I mean, I'm not surprised. Migrant workers, migrant workers have been in the headlines in 2022, perhaps more than more than they often should be. I mean, the World Cup being held in Qatar is a really good example of of that. Um, and yet, when I think about Qatar and the World Cup, I can remember few, if any, stories about female workers there. And it strikes me that we're making the same decision about our contemporary history as we did about, you know, the past. Um, is that fair, you think? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Both in in thinking about any big infrastructural project, I feel like people are just completely forgetting, again, these kind of broad social worlds that make it happen, uh, the gendered labor that makes it happen, domestic and care work. Uh, there are great people working on uh, Qatar specifically. But I think we can think about it with any of these uh, kind of big infrastructure projects, but also other, other you know, sectors where migrant labor uh, where migrant labor is central, right? Like agricultural work, uh, mining work, other various things like that. The other way that this story connects to mm, the way we speak about the migrant crisis, not, not so specifically about gender, but in thinking about Panama, um, is that, you know, the U.S. recently has begun to try to regulate uh, undocumented migration from Central America by going through Panama. So they actually, because Panama is one of the biggest um, areas of entry to, to the Central American migration corridor, the U.S. and Panama actually just signed a bilateral agreement to increase U.S. investment in Panamanian police and border forces uh, to be able to retain immigrants in Panama or even push them outside of Panama altogether so that they're not even able to continue migrating north, right? Um, so to me, again, the story of what was happening in the canal zone, right, the way that the U.S. had kind of its grip on Panamanian sovereignty, um, the way that it was able to really influence the way Panamanians dealt with this influx of West Indian migrants is still something that's going on today, right? That we see with a different wave of migration. Fascinating, yeah. I guess I should ask you the question because I'm speculating about what the next project is here. What is the next project? You know, for listeners, uh, this is your first book. Many, many congratulations. It's a huge achievement. And I think you can tell by my enthusiasm what I think of it. I think it's a wonderful book. So I, I guess what comes next? You know, this is a terrible question. I know. It's unfair. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the answer always is I have a million second projects, right? I mean, first of all, my first project is to just rest my brain after finishing this first book. So that's priority number one. Uh, and then I'm actually pursuing two, two kind of different projects that are related to this first one. Um, so the first project um, is a story of kind of financial practices in the Caribbean from the bottom up, working class financial practices. Um, in doing the research for this book, I got to engage with the records of the Barbados Savings Bank, which was this really crucial institution in Barbados where people who received remittances from their family members in Panama would save money in the savings bank. And then there's, you know, speculation about what they did with this money, mostly buy land, uh, upgrade their houses, right, in Barbados. So it was really this amazing influx of money. You were asking earlier about kind of what impact it had on the islands afterwards. Yeah, it had a huge impact, right? This was a lot of money that came back in. So I'm interested in tracking that, but thinking about it in terms of uh, family networks and how that's you know being routed through families and thinking not only of the way that most remittances are studied in terms of how men send money rather than how women receive and save money. Uh, so I'm interested in tracking that as well um, in a kind of broader story, right? That, that's how I started. Now I wanna make it kind of a bigger Caribbean story. Right now in the Caribbean, there's actually a really, 
a forceful campaign for reparations, uh, much more vocal and much more well-supported than in the U.S. So I'm interested in kind of tracking the back history of that, right? Where do these ideas of economic sovereignty come from, from actual Black West Indians? So that's one project. And then the other project is uh, about a gold mine in uh, Venezuela, the kind of Venezuela-Guyana border in a town called El Callao. Uh, which was one of the biggest sites of West Indian migration prior to the Panama Canal, right? So this was one of these sites of imperial investment I spoke about earlier, cacao, banana, gold was also one of these things, right? So this in this uh, town, in El Callao, gold is found the same year as in California. And like in California, there's a huge gold rush, right? But of course, it is ends up being different because of the transportation issues to get to this. I mean, it's essentially in the Amazon, very hard to access. Uh, and because the labor force ends up being almost entirely West Indian, mostly from Trinidad, which is an island you can just take a canoe over to Venezuela from. So I'm interested in these kind of precursors to the Panama Canal as well, um, and the domestic and care labor that women provided. Well, they sound really easy. You should have a book out in a year or two, I'm sure, right? Remittances is, that's a tiny thing that's, you know, easily found. And yeah, the, the gold rush in Venezuela, that, that didn't cause a border war for several years, right? I mean, easy stuff. I I actually, I just got an email from the National Archives in the UK that the records I requested about this gold mine, I can't look at because it's a national security issue. They won't even let me look at them. Still, it was 1896, wasn't it? I mean, we're talking a long time ago. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I look forward, certainly, Joanne, to seeing what comes out next, but also celebrating this wonderful book. Um, I am really enthusiastic about people reading this, and I think... Um, I think it has so much to offer us by way of how we get to, you know, excluded voices like like women um, and, and, and how we can kind of broaden our already deep understanding of the canal history. We can go even further. So I can't thank you enough. It's been wonderful speaking to you. Thank you so much for having me. That was so fun. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.